I have this. And then I realized that there were others who are out there researching this, taking it out of the fringe, who took it upon themselves to do what the government wasn't doing, which was to investigate cases. Your new documentary, James, I Know What I Saw, assembles accounts from various UFO witnesses from around the world. What do you believe, James? I believe that there are structured craft of unknown origin whizzing around in our airspace whose flight characteristics are so beyond anything we've had. My name is James Fox. I have been working on UFO films for coming up on my third decade. I was never out to prove that E.T. has landed. My primary objective is to say there is some really compelling evidence that needs further investigation. I stuck with it despite the level of ridicule for decades because I had gone to locations, I'd met with the witnesses, I'd looked up the documents from government files because I wanted to create a body of evidence that I could present to mainstream and say, look, there's something to it. Right, so we've got with us James Fox. I'm going to read a little bit here about his new film, Moments of Contact, UFOs and Aliens in Brazil. It is an exploration of extraterrestrial encounters, focusing on events in 1996 when citizens of Virginia, Brazil, reported seeing one or more strange creatures with brown oily skin and an alien spacecraft. And he is the director and executive producer of the film. He discusses the film today, Extraterrestrial Counters. And he also talks about how he knew the witnesses were reliable, the way the American military is involved with UFOs. <laughs> and the time the Argentinian military threatened to kill him for asking about the Virginia extraterrestrial sighting, UFO crash and close encounter. We get well, it. We're going to be kind of yeah. Well, let, let me let me just say one thing up front because you just guys just showed a clip. That's the first time that's gotten out. That was part of a series, a five part series by Breakthrough Films. Leslie Kane produced it, or was a producer on it, and it was originally going to be a CNN original, but there were some mergers, and it eventually got picked up by National Geographic, and it's a five part series. It'll be airing February thirteenth from 9 to 11 Eastern Standard, episodes 1 and 2, and then the next day it's available streaming platform, Hulu. And they heard that I was going on your show and said, hey, we'll show a clip for the first for the first time and and, uh, and make that little announcement. So there we have it. <laughs> Appreciate that, James. Before we delve into all of these different uh, elements of this, could you tell us how you first got into this genre? How much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> How much time do you have? <laughs> so I had a really good friend that we went to high school together that we, when we turned 18, we, we flew to London. We bought an old Fiat 131. We drove it to Portugal. We had this incredible adventure. We were really, really close friends. And when we got back to the States, we sort of fell out a little bit of contact. You know, I got involved with what I was doing. He was involved with whatever he was doing. And we met up like in our early, very early 20s and he started talking about, uh, you know, UFO crashes and Roswell, alien spaceships and, you know, vacation, government cover-ups. And I remember immediately thinking to myself, what a shame that I've lost such a dear friend. He's gone down this crazy rabbit hole. I'm afraid I'm going to have to sever, sever ties. And um, I just thought it was absolutely nuts. 
and I was uh, apprenticing at a video production company in San Francisco. And I had mentioned casually to one of the people that I looked up to, he was 10 years my senior, um, and I worked for him, this guy, Richard Van Sickle, and I uh, had tremendous respect for the guy. And he said, oh, yeah, you didn't know about Roswell? I said, no, why would I know about Roswell? No, I didn't know about Roswell. Oh, yeah, the military announced that they recovered a flying saucer of something from the other world, and it was covered up. And then since that cover-up, the vast majority of people that were involved directly with the cover-up came clean on camera. And, and so I thought, huh. So I started looking into, and I was doing video production, PSAs, public service announcements, um, wedding videos. I was just, just getting into video editing and stuff. I went to a few uh, conferences, I guess, and I met a few ex-military guys. I, I volunteered my services as an editor and a cameraman, kind of got my foot in the door with some of these military men. And I decided early on in my early 20s, I'm going to make a documentary on UFOs. And everyone thought I was that I'd lost my mind. <laughs> and I remember my father, who was a mainstream journalist, we went to, to England together on a couple of occasions and interviewed Stephen Hawking. He was, uh, my father was in a wheelchair. He had multiple sclerosis. And so um, it was an article on the computer software that enabled Stephen Hawking to communicate with the outside world. But in any case, my father was desperately pleading with me not to go down that, that, that path. That it was a, a dead end road. There was nothing to it. It's all ridicule and nonsense. And, um, and uh, begrudgingly, I guess, against my father's will, I pushed even harder and I, Spent about five years making a film. Uh, it was ultimately called UFOs, 50 Years of Denial. And uh, it came out in the, in the late 90s. And I sold it to Discovery Channel. And so I kind of got the last lap. But I remember at the time thinking, that's it. I'm never, I'm never doing this again. I, I'm moving on to other topics. And then I was invited. Uh, as a result of that film, I was invited to Russia. And I... I had to go to Russia. I mean, I've, I was invited to go to Russia to meet with some high-level military men, and they thought that I had connection with Fox News. That was just my last name, and my, I remember my translator just saying, just let it go, you know, don't worry. And um, and that ultimately, that trip ultimately led me to making Out of the Blue. And then Out of the Blue, uh, you know, you finish a film, and it it, it doesn't always rise to the level of the conception of that you that you had for it when you when you when you set out to make this you know you think of this 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 project and and you know the seminal feature length documentary on the topic and uh i was always a little bit I, I, although i sold it to nbc universal and it was broadcast on sci-fi channel i was a little disappointed with the ultimate uh result and so when i owned that film again the broadcast option expired after three years I went back to it and I spent another couple of years on it. And in that process, I don't know how much detail you guys want me to go into, but Please, in that, as much as possible. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, in that process, I broke a big story um, about the governor of Arizona who had poo pooed a very famous sighting, uh, commonly referred to as the Phoenix Lights, which happened on March 13th, 1997. And I was, I was there. there. I was in Arizona. At that were, time. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so I was going back and forth a lot too, but the, the governor initially had put out a press statement that he was looked like he was seriously going to investigate. He was looking into the matter and contacting Luke air force base, the Pentagon. And then later on that day, he had one of his, he had an unscheduled press conference and one of his aides dressed in an alien suit and came out and just kind of made a mockery of the whole thing. And, 
everyone was ticked off his constituents i of course was as well and so fast forward 10 years later um he was one of my prime target interviews uh for the uh the uh revamping of out of the blue and i got him and to my complete an amazement he not only admitted having seen the ufo himself quickly determined that it was otherworldly because of its size and flight characteristics but that he had in fact looked into it he had in fact contacted luke air force base the pentagon and they all just shrugged their shoulders and said we don't know what that thing was and that made big news everyone remembered the case and that um so now i was really in now i'm really kind of in the limelight a little bit here and and uh you know that's that's oftentimes rather fleeting and so i um i decided to kind of take advantage of that and i did a, an event at the national press club um where i had 14 military and government officials fly in from seven countries to testify as to the reality of of the ufo phenomenon and um i did i did that with the help of leslie kane we partnered on that one and um and then i made a movie about that and that was i know what i saw and when i finished that i was like never again not doing this again <laughs> and then i made the phenomenon and then moment of contact and now i'm working on another one <laughs> i was going to ask in the film phenomenon about um why are UFA so attracted to the nuclear arsenals and also schools? Because I've, I've seen the video of the school in Kenya mm. where the children all said the same story 20 years later. Are you, you mean Zimbabwe? Zimbabwe, yes. I think yeah. I Zimbabwe. yeah, yeah. That was uh, Aerial School 1994, Rua, Zimbabwe. Yes. Fascinating and case. Definitely. Are you able to uh, go over that for the viewers? Sure. Yeah. You know, funny enough, I heard about that it, when I was making my first film back in the 90s that I told you about that I sold to Discovery called UFOs, uh, 50 Years of Denial. And I was just naive enough to think that I could get an interview with Steven Spielberg. I had a mutual friend. It was a connection through my father, this woman named Janet Yang. And She's like, yeah, I know Steven. I've worked with him on a couple of projects. It's like, hey, will you put in the good word for me? Maybe I can get in. I was in my 20s. I was so, you know, come on. And she gets back to me like a week later. She's like, yeah, no, Spielberg's definitely not going to meet with you. But because you're working on a film on UFOs, he did suggest that you look into this landing case that happened at a school in Africa. And I dismissed it just like that quickly because I thought there's no way an event of that magnitude could take place in broad daylight and the whole world not know about it. I mean, a UFO landing, the occupants getting out and interacting telepathically, you know, according to witnesses, you know, in broad daylight for, you know, 10 or 15 minutes. I, I just, I couldn't, that was, I, I couldn't, um, I, I couldn't believe it. But, but I do now. <laughs> <laughs> it was very convincing. Well, you know. Um, so, and, and that leads on to my other question with the world obviously so tech mad. Why have we not got solid video evidence of a third encounter? Uh, like, encounters of the third kind? Yeah, an encounter of the third kind. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. I mean, there's, uh, you know, we have TikTok, YouTube, um, yeah. countless social media, yeah. and there never seems to be anything on there. Or yeah. on there. Apart from, I, I just read an article Skinny today. About, sorry? Skinny Bob. Skinny Bob. Have you seen it? You can look up Skinny Bob. A lot of people yeah. feel like Skinny Bob's real. I have not done it, my due diligence on that, but I've had no. a number of people send me the YouTube link of this so-called Skinny Bob that was 
uploaded anonymously. And I did send it out to a couple of witnesses that claimed to have come face to face with a creature. And they said that it does, did look re very similar, but I'm not saying that Skinny Bob is real. I don't know. But uh, but there are things floating around in the ether. But, you know, uh, I mean, I can get into that a little bit if you want to discuss moment of contact, but we can get down. We can talk Definitely. about that. Photographic Definitely. evidence uh, later they, on the show. Yeah, because all the aliens, um, I haven't, I could, I'm not going to quickly draw. I'm terrible at drawing. But all the pictures of that the children drew at the school, yeah. uh, that people are drew to describe aliens, is the typical alien sort of round shape with the, the pointy eyes like that. And I thought that was that was totally a myth that it would look almost like Predator. And they all seem to have that really generic look about them. Yeah, the eyes. I know. You know, look, there's that old saying by uh, the astronomer Carl Sagan, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Um, and ultimately, we don't have that definitive piece of evidence, right? Doesn't mean it doesn't exist. We don't have it. I will remind you, though, one of the one of the if if any of your audience has seen Close Encounters, speaking of Steven Spielberg, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, there is a cameo appearance of Dr. J. Allen Hynek. And Dr. J. Allen Hynek was a scientific advisor for Project Blue Book. That was the Air Force investigations from 47 to 1969, 70. And he categorized UFO sightings in an official capacity for the United States Air Force, Project Blue Book, uh, in three categories. Close encounters of the first kind, it's when somebody reports a UFO. Close encounter of the second kind, somebody reports a UFO and the, the UFO interacts somehow with the environment, whether it's photographed or on radar, burn marks on the ground, burn marks like Richard Dreyfuss' face in the, in the film from the propulsion, reportedly. And then close encounters of the third kind, and that's when uh, witnesses report seeing creatures connected to the craft. And those reports in the making of Close Encounters of the Third Kind in the 70s, I think it was 1977 when that film came out, those reports came directly out of Project Blue Book files of what the entities look like. And that's that's what they are in the mill, in the movie. So those came out of Project Blue Book files from one of the leading investigators uh, uh, from the government investigating UFOs. It's kind of an interesting little, most people don't know that, that he's, he's smoking a pipe. Yeah. Dr. Heineck. So James, what is your interpretation of the Arizona lights? So, so if you talk to witnesses, which I've done for a long time, I've been back and forth many, many times investigating that case. When we wake up in the morning, we get out of bed and we start our day with Coro Snacks. Coro is a healthy snacks brand focusing on bringing additive-free natural ingredients to their customers with fair prices in bulk packaging. They have everything from nut butters to free from baking ingredients to cooking essentials and, of course, the snacks. And the energy balls are delicious. Oh, they're my favourite, the salted pistachio. Ooh. Let's see what this one tastes like. Cheers. Cheers. Mmm. <laughs> mmm. So what makes Coro special in comparison to others? Their bulk packaging allow them to offer their customers high quality products at a fair price. 
For a 5% discount on Coro's products, use the code TRUECRIME with no space in between true and crime. The link to Coro's online shop is in the description box on YouTube. Thanks for supporting our sponsor. They get cross with you when you say, oh yeah, the Phoenix Lights. They say, no, it was the massive craft that flew over my house. And I had people say, let me give you an idea of how large this boomerang-shaped craft was. If I held up a newspaper above my head, I could not block out this craft. You could have landed an airplane on it. They said it was a mile across. And the governor, who was also... Um, he was in the Air Force, trying to remember what, what his rank was, but he was he was in the Air Force. He's also a pilot. Fife Simonton said the same thing. He said it was just massive and it just floated over the over the city, this big boomerang shape. And there were orbs and other things along along with it. But I I would have to say it's probably the most compelling mass sighting in uh, modern U.S. history because there were so many people out under the night sky to get a glimpse of the Hellbob comet that it was witnessed by so tens of thousands of people. Um, and it went all the way across the state of Arizona from the North to the South slow. Um, can I ask you as well, why is the government so hell bent uh, with withholding information from the public? Perfect answer. I can give you a perfect answer on that one. And actually I remember, cause I used to always think, God, it would be the greatest discovery of all time. We're not alone. Amazing. This is what we've all, you know, this is the age old question. And I had this general one time. He looked at me almost like you naive little boy, you know, and I kind of looked at him and he said, let, let me, let me tell you something. He said, you're looking at it entirely through the wrong lens. I said, okay, what, a, okay, well, what am I doing wrong here? He said, let me give you, he said, think of it this way. We, the Air Force, we are paid to secure our airspace. Now imagine that there are objects of unknown origin whizzing around with impunity. They fly rings around our fastest jets. They exhibit a technology that's light years advanced from anything we have. We don't know who they are, where they come from, or what they want. Shall they turn to be hostile, and not saying that they are, we have no visible means of defense against them. How do you disclose that to the general public when we're supposed to protect you? That's the conundrum we're in. And then they said, and I've heard this multiple times, you can't disclose what you know without exposing your vulnerabilities. In other words, yes, they know these things are real. Yes, they know they're whizzing around globally with impunity, uh, but... They don't know who, what their agenda is. They don't know where they come from. They don't know what they're dealing with. So that's a very difficult thing to kind of, uh, you know, how do you do that? How do you disclose that nature of information without freaking people out? And that's but this is the thing. There's, there's been several, um, obviously, a, a, several tents of military planes firing at UFOs. But yes. UFOs have never fired back. So surely there's, they're not here to harm yeah, you know, it's really funny, actually. I was interviewing this uh, Iranian general who was flying over Tehran, Iran. I believe it was 1976, famous case, Par, uh, Parviz Jafari. And he had this incredibly compelling, crazy encounter with this UFO. And uh, it was, it was, you know, he said it was 
you could see it visually when they were there. They could see it on the ground. They could see it in the air from the, from the cockpit. They had, a, and then also their radar from air to air was picking up on it. The ground to air was, was picking up on it. The people on the ground were watching it. And he said the movements, it was just otherworldly. And he finally got it lined up in his sights and he decided he was going to shoot it. And, um, and that didn't end well for him. It, it, it was almost as if, according to Parviz Jafari, that it read his mind. Just as he was about to pull the trigger, uh, his whole cockpit froze and it started falling. He said he was seconds from aborting, jumping out of the airplane, like just hitting the eject button. And years later, we flew him in from Tehran, which was another story altogether, because uh, then President George Bush had just called Iran the axis of evil. And so trying to get the visas and it was you know, for, for, for an Iranian general. And that was, a, that was a whole, but in any case, he said, um, one of my biggest regrets, why didn't I try to make peaceful contact? Why did I try to shoot? You know, I thought that was really telling uh, found, yeah. that, that he'd been all these decades later. He was, that was his biggest regret. Why did I try to shoot and not try to make contact? Yeah. Exactly. Out of all of the out of all the stories you've come across, James, which one is the most fascinating? Woo! <laughs> <laughs> Close encounter of the second kind. I, you know, two thousand and eight, Stephenville, Texas. I met a deer hunter. Um. His name is Ricky Sorrels, and he was such a simple guy, and he was living off, kind of off the beaten path. Um, he was a hunter. He worked with metal. He just a sweet, composed, beautiful guy. I mean, big, 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 big guy. And uh, he didn't want to come forward about his account. I didn't know about it because it was a mass sighting in, in Texas, and there were lots of people, including uh, the sheriff and a number of other pilots and and, and the like that, that saw this thing, but he stood under it. Ricky Sorrells stood under this craft and he, he said he was walking. What it took for me to get him to eventually come forward and participate in my film was like eight months or nine months. So it was like a witness that I tracked down a witness that I eventually persuaded to come forward. So he wasn't out trying to sell his story. He wasn't out trying to convince anybody of anything. I heard about it through a, a mutual friend and I was approaching him. I went to his house. I, spent eight months convincing him to come forward finally on camera. And he told this story to me right where it happened of, he said it, it was like, like kind of a dusk and he was walking through the forest and he said he was looking down because he was trying not to step on these dry leaves that would create crackle sounds and alert the deer. So he was looking down to get his footing and, and he's very quietly and he suddenly, he just felt something different. He stopped in his tracks and he looked up and there was this massive craft above him. He said it was so silent that had he not looked up, he would probably wouldn't have known it was there. And he's looking at it going, and he said, I couldn't see the edge in any direction. It was just a big point right above him. And he was like, what the hell? What is that? So he takes his rifle with his scope and he holds it up and he's looking through the scope and he's analyzing the metal. And he said there were no rivets, no folds, no weld marks. And it had these recessed inverted cones in the belly. He's like, I, I'd never seen anything like it. Gunmetal black. And he was like, what 
on earth am I looking at? And so he decided that maybe he was going to shoot it, pull the trigger and just see if the bullet would ricochet off it or something like this. And then as his finger was on the trigger, he thought to himself, you know, maybe this isn't such a good idea. So he opted out on shooting this thing, <laughs> but he said it looked metal. And then it, uh, it took off and he said, this is the crazy part. It was flat above him. You'd think it would have done this and taken off. He said, no, it took off flat. And it went at an angle like that. And he said it was so quick, the way it took off, no air disturbance, no noise, that had he blinked, he would have missed it. And um, But there was something about his story. I don't know how many people you've ever talked to that stood under a UFO like that for a prolonged period of time and studied the metal. Uh, There's something very, um, that left a, a deep kind of uh, impression on me. Uh, he was one of, one of, one of the top five witnesses I've, I've met. Wow. So how many encounters have you personally had with the either the third, second or third uh, kind? Well, I started making films on the topic back in the 90s, and I avoided close encounters of the third kind. That's when witnesses claimed to see occupants because I was just trying to come to terms with these objects being in the sky. That That to me was enough on my plate. I was just trying to process that. But, you know, you talk to witnesses and they all say well this thing was clearly under intelligent control the way it flew so that would indicate intelligence that would you know that there was somebody's piloting these things right i mean somebody's got to be piloting them uh and and i didn't i didn't cover close encounters of the third kind until i got to the phenomenon my last film before this before moment of contact and that's the first time. And the reason why I did it is because of the sheer volume of eyewitness testimony coming from those children in the playground. And there was a psychiatrist, uh, Harvard psychiatrist by the name of Dr. John Mack. And he flew out from Harvard back in 1994 within a week or two of the incident. And he documented all these children on camera. And we licensed that footage. And then we found the children 20 years later. Uh, with the help of this guy, Randall Nickerson, uh, who's got a movie out about it now, Aerial Phenomenon, I think it's called. It's just on that one case. And um, stuck to their stories. Many of them hadn't even told their significant others because they were tired of of, of um, defending it and, and, and being under attack. And so, I mean, there were there was a married couple that I met that she hadn't told her husband and they had kids together. And uh, I said, well, why I can't, why didn't you tell, she said, I, I got tired of defending it. And I just didn't want, I just don't want to, you know, but anyway, they recite the whole thing as if it was yesterday. And then you have that archival footage of them as children drawing what they saw, talking about what they saw. And then all the years later, having that time to process the incident and, and articulate it better as adults. I, I find that, that, that story to be incredibly compelling. And there were, so many witnesses that, um, hey, I can't say what 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 it was definitively, obviously, but I can't say what it wasn't. In other words, you hear these statements from government officials, and I hear them all the time. They say, "Well, there's no evidence of of uh, that it's alien," and I'm thinking to myself, "Well, yeah, but there's no evidence that it isn't. And how can you say what it's not when you don't know what it is?" Exactly. Wow. My next question, I've got to ask this. I've got to get you to debunk this. There's quite a few I've got <laughs> debunk or confirm. But the first one is uh, you came close to a, a 
in-person interview with Buzz Aldrin. Yes. Now, the first question I've actually got is, what have you got to say to the conspiracy theorists who believe there was no moon landing and it was actually filmed in a studio in Area 51? Okay, so uh, so I've met with a number of... I used to be friends with uh, Buzz Aldrin's sister, Faye Ann Potter. She was an art dealer in uh, Corte Madera. I went to her 80th birthday. She had all the behind-the-scenes NASA photographs of the men on the moon and great relationship with her brother. She talked about the sightings that he had had. She went to great lengths to try to get me an interview with, with him regarding his... I was very good friends with Edgar Mitchell. Uh, he was the sixth man to walk on the moon, Apollo 14. I had him detail in very like microscopic detail of, of what it was like to land on the moon. There hasn't been a single astronaut, not one single astronaut or any credible NASA figure, and they were thousands of employees to come forward and say it was hoax. Now, there have been some weird photography, and I brought this up with Edgar Mitchell in the late 90s because I said, hey, what about these shadows? Or, hey, what about this? He said, James, we were up there with Hasselblad cameras, basically gardening gloves on, trying to use these cameras. It wouldn't surprise me, is what he said to me, it wouldn't surprise me. This is the biggest, most well-funded operation in the history of mankind, that there was a plan B of good imagery photographs that they might have doctored up or done something to, just in the event that we didn't, we came home empty-handed. But that's as far as he went with it. But so I'm, uh, you know, until you have any credible NASA administrator ever come forward or any single astronaut ever come forward, they, you know, it, it's, we went to the moon. And, and I talked to some other people that described that you can actually, there are artifacts left on the moon that you can be verified. Because one of my friend's arguments was, well, why have you not done it again? Now, we, by the time it came to, a, do you know the only reason why we even watched Apollo 13? People had lost interest. If you see the film, the general public, the, the, the interest was waning to the point where it was an incredibly expensive initiative. We'd done, after Apollo 11, we'd done it, Apollo 12. By the time it came to Apollo, 10, Apollo 13, there were people not even watching that. And the only reason why we knew it is because they almost all perished coming home. So um, it was just, it was a public, just lack of public interest. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> so definitely, definitely debunked. So the next one I've got is... Uh, you can think what they want, but... <laughs> <laughs> I know, well, it's always going to be conspiracy theories. Yeah, right? you know, I mean, you know. But, yeah. um, now this one I, I actually do, do believe this to be quite accurate um several historic sites over the world including including the pyramids of giza in egypt the chichen in mexico and stonehenge here in the uk have been built in alignment with orion's belt by aliens you know that's one of the aspects it's funny actually because i went to a pyramid in the was it Mexico Chichen Itza I think yeah the Chichen Itzas yeah yeah and I saw the as El uh, Capitel Cap, Cap, um, um, but anyway I looked yeah. I just I just you know I'm just gonna be silly here for a moment but I looked at this thing and I said boy that looks like a landing pad <laughs> it's like this big flat thing with stairs coming down you know it's like <laughs> that looks like a landing pad and they had like this folklore of this serpent or the 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 the, the gods coming down from the heavens and stuff. And, you know, I don't, I'm not uh, an ancient alien historian. However, if you, if, you, if you look at the phenomenon, I feature excerpts 
from Wonders in the Sky, which is the book that was written by Dr. Jacques Vallée. And that features these incredible illustrations, cave paintings and the like from around the world of interpretations of what could only be seen as in encounters with, with unknown objects. Very compelling stuff, which would be an indication that the phenomenon is nothing new. It's been around, it's been around ages. And I can only imagine if they have been around for since the dawn of time, uh, certainly throughout our existence on this planet, that, that we would look at them as gods, particularly back then. So how, yeah. how, how, how far back do these paintings go? I, I think as far back as recorded history that you could paint these things. I mean, it's look, I was in I was in Africa investigating that landing case at, at aerial school. And I was like 2017. And and the uh, the woman, Judy Bates, who's now the headmistress, who was a teacher at the time, she confirmed the case and all that. She gave me some of these drawings the children had done. Fascinating of, of the of the entities, the big eyes, the heads and everything. And uh, wow, it's just this is just fascinating. And I went to Australia to investigate a, a, an alleged landing at another school, Westall, 1966. And I took these I took photographs of the of the drawings that the teacher had shared with me uh, in Africa. And somebody said. Wow, that looks like the one Gina that were driven, written by the aboriginals on these cave paintings dating back four or 5,000 years. I said, well, really? And they looked it up and the skin, like I just was like the parallels between these illustrations and these cave art or whatever, thousands and thousands of years ago. Uh, you can look them up, Wangina. I think it's W-A-N-G... W-A-N-J-I-N-A, I believe, Cave Art Australia. So, you know, it wouldn't surprise me. Again, I'm just not that historian. I'm not, I don't, that's not my area of expertise. I focus primarily on modern day science, uh, sightings, but but I definitely raised a few eyebrows like, wow, this is incredibly compelling. Definitely. It's fascinating. I'm, Absolutely. Yes, definitely. So you mentioned on the impulsive interview on YouTube, I, I watched that very good, um, that you would love to see your six-year-old son grow up with it not being a secret. How close are we to this actually being the case? Um, and also, what is the latest on the 180-day uh, Pentagon program? So, um, great question. You know, I was talking to an intelligence guy um, about it. And he said, you know, James, there's no more, there's no, it's no longer a question of are UFOs or UAPs, unidentified area of the phenomena real. That's been confirmed at the highest levels. We know that. Now it's a question is, what is it? What are we dealing with? You can't put the genie back in the bottle, right? So I know that there are people within the intelligence agencies. I interviewed a very high level government official, uh, former Senate Majority Leader, Harry Reid. It was a huge get uh, in my career. I mean, I waited a lifetime for that one. Um, almost blew it at the last minute, but that's another story. And he he said that, it, that he just wanted to launch an investigation. It, it eventually ended up to be ATIP, which is that secret Pentagon UFO program that Lou Elizondo was involved with that wound up on the front page of the New York Times. And he he said to me the level of pushback he got within the intelligence community was so significant that people were fearful of even losing their jobs 
there was so much pushback. He's like, look, all we want to do is do an investigation. We're not like, and, and it was a private thing too. I don't think that that was ever intended to be made public. It, that, that spanned through the tail end of the Bush administration, all the way through Obama administration, you know, eight years, and then into the first year of the Trump administration without anyone knowing about it. I don't even think Obama knew about it. Mm. So it was never, I don't, I don't believe it was ever intended to go public. I think that Lou Elizondo, certainly according to um, Leslie Kane, stepped down from his position and retired because of excessive secrecy. And, you know, they walked those tapes out of the Pentagon. They found a loophole and onto the front page of the New York Times. Um, so clearly there are people within that want this out and feel that every man, woman, and child is entitled to know this story because it's potentially huge. Um, and there are others that I talked about earlier, why they're resistant to get this out because they're going to have a lot of explaining to do. They're going to have egg all over their face and, and, and they're not going to provide in my opinion, in the opinion of many others, all the, all the answers. I don't think anyone who says they know everything that's going on. I, I, I don't believe that. I think they're, that they they are uh, in the dark as well. I mean, they know a lot more than we do, but in terms of like what their agenda is and how it relates to our existence and all the rest of it, I think is a big mystery. I still who believe the most senior, who, Who's the most senior government officials you've corresponded with about this? Like ex-presidents, ex-heads of military? Yeah, um, I got, uh, I got uh, Jimmy Carter in the 90s to admit at a book signing that he not only saw UFO, but looked into it. And he wasn't happy with the answers he was getting. I talked to John Podesta. I talked to Gerald Ford. I talked indirectly with the Clintons through another person. I have a letter from them about, you know, looking into it. Um, I know that that Gerald Ford was upset. There were congressional hearings back in the 60s. Um, he There were very compelling landing cases in Michigan back in the 60s. And they eventually had congressional hearings in the 66 or 68. And... Um, uh, Carter looked into it. Clinton looked into it. Don't think that I know of. Bush probably knew it because his dad was head of CIA, so Bush Jr. Um, and I'm not sure. I was told that, that Trump had little to no interest in it, even though he was debriefed at an unclassified level. But I talked to people that did that. And then I have no idea what, what Joe Biden, President Joe Biden, thinks of it. I don't, I don't think much. I don't think much. Are you um, aware of what the Clintons thought? Well, so I know that, 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 so what happened with President Clinton is that um, in the 90s, um, Lawrence Spellman Rockefeller was, uh, in his twilight years, was focused heavily on further government transparency on the topic of UFOs. He was funding lots of researchers, investigators, Dr. John Mack, a whole slew of others, scientists, um, and then he was putting, leaning on the Clinton administration. In fact, I was told that he said to President Clinton, Either you do this or I'm going to expose the fact that you won't do it on every page of every newspaper. And so Clinton said, OK, what do you want us to look into? And he said, Roswell. So the Clinton administration went after Roswell and they were not happy with the answers they were getting. So that kind of leads you to believe like, you know, and I've had enough examples of that. Well, if the president of the United States doesn't have the authority or doesn't have access, who does? And that's my next question. Who does? I, you know, I'm, I'm launching a new film project right now. I don't have a title for it yet, but it's basically where's the evidence and who has the authority to release it. I've heard enough accounts about this evidence that exists. And uh, it's just a matter of where is it? Who has the authority to release it?
And what, what, what about artificial intelligence? A lot of people said that was passed to us by aliens. I have not a damn clue. Zilcho, nada, ria. Oh, yeah. What about TikToks? What are TikToks? <laughs> tic tac, tic tac. You know, it's funny. Tic tacs. When that story. No, it's really funny, actually, because when that story came out, it was 2017, the end of 2017. I was knee deep in the production of The Phenomenon. I don't think I had a title for it then. And one of the cases I was covering took place in 1964 in Socorro, New Mexico. And it was a police officer by the name of Lonnie Zamora. And I, was, I remember looking up Tic Tac. When were Tic Tacs invented? I don't remember because maybe Lonnie Zamora, instead of saying it was a white egg, would have said it looked like a Tic Tac. But he described it as a white egg, but it was rather similar in size and uh and shape and description to the tic tac wow. all those years later all those years later and definitely not tiktok because uh, there is a, uh, a tiktok time traveler i read in the news today has warned that a hostile alien named the champion could soon swoop down to earth and take over the planet you, you know so you've seen that one i it's so funny because you know you look into these absolutely absurd you know stories that, that leak out over the years and i remember looking into why that was why the ridicule and i uh i looked into this extensively and i there if you if if any of your viewers out there would like to just do a search on this in uh, two consecutive weekends in july of 1952 People say, well, if these things were real, they'd land on the White House lawn. They almost did back in July of 1952. Two consecutive weekends, visual confirmation, radar confirmation, um, ground to air, air to air. Um, and these, these objects uh, were whizzing around over the White House, over the Capitol building. And uh, the air, it made headline news everywhere. And in very early... Uh, 1953, they convened a panel by the CIA called the Robertson Panel. And the Robertson Panel basically looked at the data and they ultimately concluded, look, you know, um, for a number of different reasons, but you, you can't really deny the existence of these things, excuse me, but um, you can adopt a policy of ridicule. And I think that that, uh, that was a very effective campaign and it stuck for decades. In fact, I think it's one of the main reasons, I don't, no, not really many people have said this, that they've changed the acronym from UFO, Unidentified Flying Object, to UAP, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon. There's other reasons as well, but that one had baggage. UFO has baggage, let's face it. I mean, whether you believe it or not. So UAP, I think it's another reason why they don't have to say, you know, the giggle factor of like, hey, UFOs, and then, <laughs> you know. Yeah, so I think that was a, a, a very, very effective campaign. At the certain parts of the world where sightings are more frequent. You know, one of the things that, one of the aspects of the phenomenon that we kind of organically came to the realization on, and it was funny actually, because we were in the edit room with, with um, and I was, I'd gone to this archive, David Marler archive, and he has one of the biggest libraries of archive, like uh, 
taped interviews from the 40s and 50s and 60s and newspaper clippings and all this stuff. And I was basically putting together a little montage of sightings um, in, in, the, uh, in the 40s and 50s, and I think even the 60s. And we had a map. No, my, 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 my uh, editing partner at the time, this guy Lance Mungia, he said, uh, hey, James, let's put a map on the wall. Let's put pins where these different sightings are happening. It might be a nice visual. So like, sure. So we started putting these pins in from where these archive interview people were talking about these landings and sightings. And I was like, look at the Trinity site. The first detonation of the atomic bomb, 1945. All these sightings are happening right around it. Even Socorro landing, Holman Air Force Base, White Sands. Isn't that interesting? Hmm. That's right. That's That's right. Note. Then when I interviewed Senator Harry Reid, I asked him, I, I didn't, I forgot to ask him when we were sitting down for whatever reason. I had a very limited time with him. And he had these like big security guys with the little, you know, standing in the Hope you're enjoying the podcast. There's a word from our sponsor, Rocket Money, formerly Truebill. If you're missing your credit card payments or you need to make a budget, you need our favorite financial app, Rocket Money, formerly Truebill. So why did Truebill change its name to Rocket Money? I'll tell you what I heard. Truebill, now backed by Rocket Companies, has grown from a bill management app into a full-on personal finance empowerment tool that helps over 3.4 million people with budgeting, lowering bills, cancelling subscriptions, and more, saving each of their members on average $700 a year. And with all that growth comes the next evolution in Truebill's story, a new name. Bottom line, rocket money is everything I've loved about Truebill, but with a fresh look and feel. Start cancelling your unused subscriptions and save money at rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. That's rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Or download the app from the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. Thank you for supporting our sponsor, Rocket Money. Link will be in the description box if you're watching on YouTube. Quite intimidating. Is it okay if I put my arm around for a photograph? And I said to him at the end of the interview, oh, gosh, would you mind quickly if we did a quick B-roll shot of the two of us walking in the hallway? And I said, no, James, that'll be fine. You know, and, and he had like, I don't know, 45 seconds or a minute or whatever it was. And we come down. I said, well, might as well take advantage of this time with him in the hallway. And I said, what was one of the more alarming aspects or, or compelling aspects, something like this, um, of the phenomenon that you guys uncovered during this Pentagon UFO program? And without hesitation, he said, the fact they're flying over our secret, you know, uh, nuclear military installations and shutting things off. And I thought, wow. And I thought back to that map of all the UFO sightings around the nuclear sites. And, and that's when I went back to the drawing board and spent a year with this guy, Robert Hastings, and, and did, did a five or, uh, what is it, maybe a five or 10 minute segment of the, of, of the uh, film, The Phenomenon, focused primarily on UFOs and nukes. Is the reason why they are surrounding all our nukes is because they they are trying to see our weapons in detail? Well, I tell you what, I had this launch control officer by the name of Robert Salas, and he it was so funny. I could see why he was a launch control officer. He was so measured and calm, like if like a UFO landed 
in your driveway and the aliens got out, he'd probably be like, hmm, that's interesting. We should walk over there and have a look and see what's going on. He's that kind of guy, you know, nothing kind of gets him. And he said to me, I said, wow, what an experience. He was telling me about this UFO that came over the base and shut these things off. And he said, yeah, yeah. It's almost like taking matches out of the hands of a baby. <laughs> well, one way to quit. You know what I mean? I thought that's a good way to look at it. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, yeah, they, they have they have such intelligence and you know, much beyond our years. And why have they not made it very present that they you know that they're visiting? You know, you look at what they do. And then you look at what they don't do. All they'd have to do is fly over the Macy's Day Parade or the Super Bowl, and it would be game over. Mm. They don't do that. They don't do that. There are other little telltale indicators. They give us just enough, and then they back off. I mean, that that incident in, in Phoenix in 1997 was it's pretty stellar. Everyone was calling it in. It was just that they were <laughs> flooded with calls, weren't they? Yeah, no, it was a big deal. That yeah. was a big deal. That was the most blatant that I can think of because it was over a populated city and it was over nine. It wasn't two in the morning. It was like from 5.30 to 7.30 or 8, something like that. Have you seen it, Jen? It's on YouTube, the Phoenix Lights. I have to watch that. Phoenix yeah, no, it's yeah. crazy. Lights. No. It's crazy. I interviewed, so crazy. I interviewed families that said, like, this one woman was like, she ran inside, oh, my God, everybody got here. And they all ran outside, and the whole family, except the dad was on the phone. All the kids came out. They said they were lying on their backs on the front lawn. You know, it's March 13th, probably fairly warm. Lying on their backs and looking up, and it was like a floating city. They thought it was going to land. And they see compartments, and it just said it took, like, it was so big, it took, like, five minutes to pass over the top of them. And I talked to countless people. I had people, they said that they were on, uh, was it Interstate 10, I believe, between Tucson and Phoenix. And I talked to people that said there were cars pulled over to the side of the road, people standing there just looking up at this thing, just flying right over. Just standing there, just all like, in fact, I interviewed a bunch of hospice workers, these women. And uh, they said they were having tea outside um right around the time this thing came over and they're all talking about their work and having tea and all of a sudden this massive thing just floats right over the top of them they all stop what they're doing and they just watched it and watched it and then at the end they just looked back at each other and carried on their conversation i said started drinking the tea you didn't <laughs> grab your cameras and run after it they said no i don't even think our brains could have comprehend what we were looking at like it was so out of the normal it was almost like i'm going to treat this like a non-event because i said well why didn't you get in your car and chase that why didn't you get your kid why you know they're all like five women just sat there looking at it, it was like that's the witnesses like you just can't process what you're seeing is so you know yeah I, I, oh, you, you talk to a lot of people during this, an encounter especially a very unambiguous encounter and the last thing on their mind is running for the camera. They're just like frozen, you know, people. So. But there are some, hey, look, there's, there's been great photographic evidence. Fantastic, crystal clear, broad daylight, multiple, uh, you know, witnesses. Um, 
dating back to the 40s and 50s. I mean, there's been and 60s. Very good. I mean, look at the uh, Paul Trent and his wife Evelyn Trent. I think it's two or three shop uh, shots in uh, McMinnville, Oregon, 1950. Those those have never been debunked. Multiple eyewitness, flying saucer. You know, points of reference, broad daylight, perfectly in focus. There there are a number of you know. Um, of good photographs, but not as many as you as we'd like, right? But I'm sure that the military is sitting on, according to all the eyewitnesses, all the military guys that I've talked to, they're sitting on the on the best evidence. Definitely. And what about people who have claimed to have been abducted by aliens? I think that's not a, a yeah. So so I've looked into a couple of cases. I looked into Allagash. I don't know if it's called the Allagash 4 or Allagash 5. Um, but um, multiple eyewitnesses, very compelling testimony. In fact, one there they were all these, these, uh, these guys that were uh, backpacking. I don't remember what uh, forest they were in, but in any case, on the East Coast. And um, they were out on a lake. And they said they saw this orb, this light off in the distance. They were all just kind of in a, in a, I think they were fishing. They were in a canoe and they were looking at this light. Oh, well, hey, what's that? You know, they took their flashlight out and he said, I, I was curious. So I, so I got my flashlight out and I shone it at the object and I clicked the flashlight on and off like an SOS kind of thing. And he said that the, the object responded immediately. They all said it shot across the lake right over the top of them. And I'll never forget what he said. He goes, at which point my curiosity was fully satisfied. <laughs> <laughs> they tried to run in, you know, that's a great case. And then there's the uh, uh, Snowflake, Arizona. I think it was 1975 with uh, Travis Walton. And there were five or six other witnesses to that. He disappeared for five days. Very compelling case all past lie detector tests. Um, what did the witnesses see? I'm sorry? What did the witnesses see? What, him go up? Oh, they, 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 were, they were lumberjacks, and, and, the, and it was in Snowflake, Arizona. I think it was 1975, but I'm not positive on that exact date. And they were in Snowflake, Arizona, and they were lumberjacks, and they were under government contract to clear treeing, uh, uh, clear, clearing trees. And... Um, and they saw a bright light. They thought it was a fire. They, it was late, late in the afternoon, early evening. And um, they drove towards it on this dirt road thinking there was a fire. And it was a beautiful disc hovering at treetop level. And one of the guys, at the, at, against the will of everybody else in the truck, it was a four-door truck, got out, named Travis Walton. He started to run towards this thing. And he thought the thing was going to shoot off. And he was just wanted to get as good of a sighting as he could of it. And he's running towards this thing and everyone's screaming at him to get back. And um, he said he, he heard it kind of like, like it was spooling up, like, like spooling up, like it was going to do something. And he thought, boy, I'm getting awfully close to this thing. Maybe I better take cover. So he hid behind a little like log. It was a recently cut tree. And uh, he was hiding kind of behind that. It was making more and more noise, like it was going to do something. And they're all screaming at him to get back and get back to the truck. He decides to make a run to get back to the truck. He gets up and he hits a force field or something, and it knocks him like a raggedy and doll all the way across, at which point the driver of the truck and all the rest of the people witnessing this thought that they were next. So they stepped on the gas pedal and left him for dead. They got about, about a mile or two down the road and they realized the driver said, I've got to turn around. I, we, we can't leave Travis out there. 
So against, you know, there were some people who wanted to come. He said, look, if you don't want to, if you don't want to come with me, the driver, then you can stay here in the forest alone. I'm turning this truck around and we're going back to get Travis. And so they all decided, hey, maybe we would better stick together. So they stayed in the truck, they turned around, they drove back, flying saucer gone, Travis Walton gone. So now they're gonna go into town and tell the authorities that what happened. And the authorities looked at him like, you guys killed him. And you're all under investigation for homicide. Not one person believed them. And could you imagine like going back, well, this flying saucer took our everybody. Sure, a flying saucer took your <laughs> Yeah. Well, they did this exhaustive five-day manhunt. It made the tabloid news, made the news all across all around. And uh, they had helicopters and dogs and nothing, man. They couldn't find him. And then five days later, he reappear reappeared on the outskirts of town. And this is interesting. If you are to believe the accounts of these witnesses, and they're pretty damn credible. I've been there and I've been to the location. I've talked to the witnesses. I was impressed with this case, even though I haven't reported on it in any of my films. Very impressed with this case. And um, if you look at where they dropped him off as to where they allegedly picked him up, they picked him up in the middle of nowhere. Like, I don't think Travis would have made, you couldn't have made it out of there on your own, particularly in, in, in on a cold winter night. Um, no way. And, but they, they, they dropped him off in an, like just outside town, down a little, in a little valley. So they could dip down quickly, drop him off, and then swoop up and out. So he's okay. He's close enough to town, but they don't expose themselves. But they cool. cared about him enough to know that if they dropped him off where they picked him up, he wouldn't have made it. So they dropped him off in the outskirts of town in an area that would that would uh, minimize any potential for uh, for their exposure. I mean, he, was, he was gone five days. What allegedly five happened days. to him? Oh, that's a yeah. That's I mean, you know, I mean, I don't know if you want me to get into it. I will. Please. Uh, anything, yeah. Okay. Can you anything so, that needs to. <laughs> so when I when I met with Travis on a number of occasions, we had dinner together, just the two of us, years ago, and I said, Travis, I am so sorry that I have got to ask you this because I know you've been through this. Well, I have this technique. Uh, we were talking about the moon landing when I when I met with Edgar Mitchell, Apollo fourteen, six man to walk the moon. I I said the same thing. I said I said, Doctor Mitchell, I'm so sorry to ask you this because I know you've had to, but could you tell me what it was like to go to the moon? And he said, well, Mr. Fox, if you really want to know, sure, I'll, I'll take a moment and do that. So I closed my eyes. And the reason I closed my eyes is because I want to recreate the imagery with the words. So I see it. I see. And to me, it's like as close as I can get to experiencing what they are. And it also helps me remember the incident better because I'm a visual person. So I closed my eyes. And I did so with Edgar Mitchell when he told me about going to the moon. And I did so with uh, Travis Walton. And so he very gave it to me at this restaurant in Arizona. And he said that he woke up and he was blurry eyed and it was kind of light, bright light. And he was on a table. He didn't know where he was. He didn't know what happened. And he's blurry. He's opening his eyes and everything's kind of blurry. And he's just trying to regain consciousness and figure out what's going on. And he sees these little figures, but it's blurry and he doesn't really know what he's looking at, he doesn't know where he is, he's disoriented, he's weak, and he slowly, his vision starts to come back and he sees these, he's absolutely terrified. He sees these, these the quintessential, you know, big heads, almond-shaped eyes, busybodies doing stuff around him. And he loses his mind, he starts screaming, he grabs some kind of thing that was on the table and he's swinging at him. And he said one of the things that really shocked him is that his hand hit one of them 
and how light it was. There was hardly any resistance to it. It, mm. it moved out the way rather quickly. And they scurried off and left. I'm just telling you what he told me. They scurried off and left. He's in this room. They went to the right, going into the going out of the room he was in and into a corridor, which he said was like, like it was one mold of of metal, like a like polished aluminum, no rivets, no seams, just one solid mold. And he said he was walking through, they went to the right, he went to the left, and he said his shoulders were rubbing both sides of that's how small it was. It was kind of small, and he was having a hard time breathing. And uh, he gets to another room and he says he saw like a chair, like a commanding chair, almost like Captain Kirk or something. And uh, he sat in the chair and he thought, well, maybe this is the way out. Sat in the chair and he pushed some buttons and a holographic projection came on in, in the room of a star chart. And he was looking at that and he thought, oh, my God, it's moving. Maybe, I, maybe I'm on a spaceship. I'm going to crash this thing. What am I doing? And just then, two, again, I'm going to reemphasize. I'm just telling you what he told me. Two rather angelic-looking humans walk in with these suits on and, and a glass bulb thing over there. And he says, oh, my God, you're here to save me. Thank you. They wouldn't talk, but they looked human. But they had these glass things over their heads and uh, helmets, but solid glass. They didn't say anything. They didn't speak anything. And they took him rather forcefully, and they escorted him out. And where am I going? Where are you taking me? What's going on? You know? And they didn't say anything. And he said so he came out the, the hallway and there was a ramp that came down. And he said, I was either in a huge hangar with lots of other smaller spaceships, flying saucers, or I was in the belly of a huge spaceship. And those were smaller, more like smaller craft to go out. And he said, I don't know. I don't know where I was. And they escorted me over. And there was a woman. I said, well, how do you know it was a woman? He said, it was a woman, James. And they put, he tried to fight it, but they put like a clock over his mouth and nose a rag of some sort over him and he tried to fight it but he said he was so weak he couldn't fight back and he did, and then he woke up five days later in a field and he watched the ufo take off yeah. Case. yeah i know but you had to remember it's like there's all these witnesses that saw the ufo and saw him get struck and saw you know all these witnesses that were testifying and under you know like Stress of, of, you know, manslaughter, basically. Like, honestly. I, I was just quite happy. It was a probing story, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. So there was a movie made about it called Fire in the Sky, but the end of the movie is not accurate. What I just told you is accurate. That's according to oh. the witness. Wow, it's been absolutely mind-blowing, James. Really, yeah, thank you for all these stories. Can you tell the viewers where they can find you and support your work? Oh, sure, thank you. Um, so I've got Moment of Contact out now. You can get it on Amazon. If you're going to rent it, rent it on Amazon. If you're going to buy it, get it from Hulu, Vimeo, or iTunes because it comes at the same price with two hours of bonus material. People always get cross when I don't say that because I bought it on Amazon. I didn't know you had two hours of bonus content. So if you're going to buy it, get it from iTunes or Vimeo. If you're going to rent it, do it from Amazon. It's the cheapest. And if you wouldn't mind giving uh, a rating, it always helps the algorithms. And it was a pleasure 
uh, joining you guys on the show. I hope I didn't talk thank too much. Thank you. No, it was brilliant. Honestly, thank you. Phenomenal. So, really appreciate it, James. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Of course. <laughs> I think I can do that. Yeah, this one. <laughs> so, so, so viewers, all, all of James's links will be in the description box below this video. So please support our guest and check out his stuff. Thank you for watching. Let us know in the comments what you think. Take care out there, wherever you are in the world. Cheers. Bye-bye. <laughs>